Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, historian and author Caitlin Marie Carter on secrecy and transparency in early America. You have in 1787, 55 delegates who make their way to Philadelphia. Pretty much as soon as they all get there, they shut the doors, they have guards outside, they close the windows. They're committed to keeping a tight wrap on what they're discussing in the room. You immediately have critics who start to say, wait a minute, this really can't be considered a document in the name of the people. If it was formulated entirely behind closed doors, the people had no chance to offer their input on it. They had no chance to understand how it was formulated. You know, Madison, he had written later in his life that he thought without secrecy, there never would have been a constitution reached. Caitlin, welcome to Chatter. Thanks so much for having me. I am going to do something that is abnormal for our podcasts here, which is I'm going to jump right to the bottom line. I'm not going to ask you about your research and your background and all that. We'll get to that during the conversation. But I was struck by a line in your recent book that really encapsulates so much that you bring the receipts for in the research. It's in your new book, Democracy in Darkness. And you write, since the age of revolutions... We have come to associate representative democracy so firmly with publicity or transparency that secrecy is generally considered exceptional, problematic, even threatening. And yet it need not have been that way. And by looking at the American and French experiences, you show that it has not always been that way. So I want to get to that conclusion and tell the stories that that led you to write that, that powerful statement. Uh, but as just a little bit of background first, what first got you excited in this question of transparency, secrecy, and different manifestations and different forms of representative democracy? Well, uh, before going to graduate school to study history, I actually worked in D.C. for a couple years doing media relations uh, for different um, issue-based campaigns, mainly. Um, and through that process, I had always been interested in the press and in politics. And then working in that field in D.C., I got very interested just in how our elected officials conceive of their roles, their relationship to public opinion, to their constituents, and sort of the role of the press in facilitating that, that relationship. Um, and so I, I was interested in that. I knew I wanted to study history. Um, and so when I went back to grad school, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to the origin. <laughs> I'm going to go back to the origin of modern representative democracy and try to understand how people at the time thought about these questions. And what I found was just that there was this explosion of anxiety about state secrecy in the late 18th century when these revolutions were happening and when these new representative republics were being set up for the first time. And so I saw that it was a key moment where, um, as, as you were saying, uh, transparency became really central to conceiving of this new form of government. And do I take away from what you just said that this period in the late 18th century was was unique in some ways that, in fact, the issue of secrecy in government had been, for lack of a better phrase, taken for granted up to that point. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I won't say that it's unprecedented necessarily, but yeah, it's a unique moment. I mean, up to then, especially the early modern state in Europe, secrecy is kind of assumed. Um, it's 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 sort of accepted and, and presumed that politics, um, government, the realm of the state, that that is just sort of a secret realm. And it's not really questioned so much. Uh, the reason I think why secrecy becomes questioned in the late 18th century is because there is this uh, change in thinking. There's an effort to instantiate popular sovereignty in, in governments. Mm -hmm. And then these questions arise about how that actually can work in practice. And it becomes you know, harder to justify or make a case for or defend secrecy in the government if that government is supposed to be speaking for the people or representing the people you know many people start to say well surely that means the people must know what they're doing or or need to know what they're doing right well it's it you look at this as a historian but i find these arguments uh, just as compelling from my own background in political science and i can imagine some of this work being done uh, from a slightly different angle by a political theorist because you look at the very issues of representation and what legitimates uh, government in, in a system like this. And let's jump right in. Like, I want to get to how, especially the US, but we can compare it with the French case for uh, illustrative purposes, but how the, the, the founders, what became the founders of the United States were looking to look at representative government and make it legitimate as a government by and for the people. And there are two basic aspects of this. One, I think you call more reflective and one more insulated. Can you lay out those two, not necessarily opposed alternatives, but more like a spectrum in many ways? But can you lay out those different forms of representation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in the late 18th century, when these republics are getting founded, and I'll, I'll speak specifically about the United States, um, there are kind of two visions for how a representative government could work. So uh, the, the, I, the whole idea is we're going to make a representative government because direct democracy is not possible. Um, our society's too large for it. It's not practicable. Mm -hmm. um, and so no one's advocating that. So then the question becomes, okay, how can you make representative democracy work as a, a form of popular sovereignty? Mm -hmm. um, and you have those who basically view it as kind of a necessary evil almost, who might prefer a more direct democracy. And mm -hmm. they adhere to this idea that I call in the book reflective representation, mm -hmm. which is, okay, because we have to have representative government, the best way for that to work would be to make sure that the representatives resemble the people as much as possible, um, that they go back, they consult their constituents, uh, they, they act as their agents, they, they do what their constituents want them to do in making decisions. And they sort of mirror public opinion and they act as if uh, the people were all assembled together, you know, if they could be. So that's kind of the reflective vision of representation. Okay. Um, and that's really driving a lot of uh, the action in the American Revolution, kind of the criticism of parliament and the criticism of, of the structure there. So you have that kind of driving force. On the other hand, you have another view, and, and this is really articulated well by Madison in the Federalist Papers, which I call insulated representation, which is, okay, direct democracy is not possible, but actually representative government's not just a necessary evil, it's maybe an improvement upon direct democracy. Um, because what it means is that we can have the wisest, uh, most enlightened uh, men, and they view it as men in the society, come together 
uh, deliberate in calm um, and, and talk with each other and arrive at the common good for the entire people. And it might be a pronouncement of the common good that is, you know, under this conception, uh, better than if all the people were to try to come together and reach it themselves. Uh, so um, you have that view and that that's um, something that requires a little more insulation uh, from the public that you wouldn't want your representatives to always be worried about what their constituents want or going back and asking them that, that that's not really their job. Their job is to come consider all the information available to them, deliberate, and then make decisions in what they deem the best interest of, of the people. So those are kind of the two views. Madison, in, in putting out that idea and making that argument for the insulated uh, democracy, um, really was, was taking on Rousseau, right? Because Rousseau, what, 10, 20 years earlier had written, the English people think they are free. They are strongly mistaken. They are free only in the moment in which members of parliament are elected. Once they are elected, the people are slaves. They are nothing. And obviously, some of the founders were quite familiar uh, with that idea and the fact that they were going against that current that was starting to emerge. And yet they found that it was the most practical solution forward. Um, how was that reflected in I guess, what would we call it? The early Continental Congress and some of the forms of organization that were happening uh, before and during the revolution. Sure. Well, it's interesting you bring up Rousseau because he's a really complicated figure in this kind of thinking because he does write at points uh, passages like the one that you just cited where he's really kind of denouncing a system of representation. But then in some ways, he, his views are actually very similar to the views right. that Madison's articulating, which mm -hmm. is uh, his idea of the general will, where he says, you know, that's more than the sum of individual wills, right? And and in doing that, it really empowers uh, elected officials to come up with that general will without having to go out and and consult people. So in that sense, Rousseau is a really tricky figure and, and sometimes kind of aligns with, with Madison. But you're right, um, the American framers are also reading Rousseau. They're very familiar with that. Um, and so when they're going into the, the revolution, um, probably a lot of people are very familiar with the Americans' critique of virtual representation in the parliament. So they're frustrated with the tax policy land policy, lots of things coming out of Parliament in the 1760s and 70s. And um, the response that comes out of London is, well, you're, everyone's represented in Parliament, even if they don't vote uh, for members of the House, because um, everyone in the empire shares a common interest and those representatives go there and they determine it. Well, uh, you know, Americans say, no, actually, that's not true. You know, we, we actually don't think that we share the same interests. Um, and it is uh, really important to us to receive our direct consent in, in an ongoing way. So that is something that's fueling the, the American Revolution. And you can kind of see that uh, the commitment to that idea reflected in the way that they set up new state governments and state legislatures that are designed to be much more in this reflective style of representation. Um, but on the other hand, you have the, the Continental Congress, which is, is a bit different. Um, it, it works behind closed doors. Um, it does not really operate with I, that idea of reflective representation. Um, mm -hmm. So there are some contradictions um, there in the, in the revolutionary period. As a historian looking at this, there obviously there, there's a, a wealth of material from the 1770s 
uh, to look at. A lot of letters being written that uh, are still around today and a lot of records. Uh, what was the reaction to the Continental Congress in what, 1774, 1775, meeting in strict security? And what did they, what did they say were the reasons for doing that? Yeah, um, well, so there's varied reaction. I mean, a lot of the delegates, it's really interesting, a lot of the delegates themselves, um, you can find instances in their letters where they lament uh, the fact that they need to meet behind closed doors and, and use secrecy. Um, some of them, you find them, especially once the war breaks out, kind of writing to friends, you know, saying, I wish we could have discussions as open as those happening in coffee houses, you know, but we're really shut up here. And they kind of justify the secrecy um, based on the military situation, I know primarily they're they're fighting a war, um, so there's that, and then also their other kind of primary activity is seeking foreign support and and alliances, mm. also something that requires a, a great deal of of secrecy. Um, and on top of those things, they're they're rebelling, right? So they're also trying. They're also using, um, you know, secrecy to uh, protect th themselves, um, but also to project a, a sense of, of unity um, mm. going into to the war. And you do have, uh, especially on the, you know, the side of loyalists or people who become loyalists, who critique this um, from mm. the first Continental Congress, who say, you know, this Congress has issued this statement saying it's in the name of the American uh, people, the American colonies, but we don't even know what they did uh, in there and they're not speaking for all of us. So mm -hmm. you do see um, moments where the secrecy is contested um, even before the war breaks out and, and during the war itself. Interesting also is that, you know, we're talking largely here about issues of representation and ways that people imagined representation and then put it into practice but the delegates didn't necessarily see themselves as representatives, right? They weren't directly elected for the purpose of doing this Continental Congress thing. They they saw themselves just as much, if not more so, as ambassadors from their states, right? Yeah, well, we have to remember that, uh, you know, during the war, these colonies turn into states, and they very much view themselves as independent states, um, banding together um, in this struggle, but remaining independent. So throughout the time that the, the Continental Congress is, is the governing body of the Union, it's not, um, it, we can think of it as a precedent to the federal government in some ways, but in many ways it's not. It really is more akin to a coalition sort of grouping together. So I, I do talk about that in the book to say that, uh, you know, part of the reason they maybe have been more okay with meeting behind closed doors is because they, they did view themselves a little bit more, like you're saying, as ambassadors kind of coming from their states rather than representatives of the people. Um, though I also think because they use secrecy, we can kind of see that that might be what they viewed and that that might have furthered that vision because there's tensions even for them. I mean, we know like in the lead up to the Declaration of Independence, a lot of these delegates are are concerned about uh, reflecting public opinion. I mean, they're worried. They don't want to get out ahead of it. Um, they, they need to know, or they are concerned to know, okay, are the people or enough of the people behind us if we're going to make this kind of decision? So there are a lot of tensions there in terms of 
what their roles actually are, how they're thinking about them, and and where they're getting their their legitimacy from. And there's certainly, as you mentioned, were were critics of this and people saying that this secrecy is inherently bad. This is the kind of thing we didn't like about the whole British system, right? This is the thing we don't like about uh, what's going on with the way that the, the colonies are being managed is the secrecy that comes from there. But there were some voices on the other side, right? I mean, didn't some people say that the secrecy was actually good or even not enough? Um, George Washington, looking at the Articles of Confederation period, uh, famously said something about, you know, there should be more secrecy, right? Yeah, yeah. George Washington, um, I I found this great letter where he writes that um, after the war, he's sort of like, well, one of the defects of the Articles of Confederation in the Congress is that there's not enough secrecy, actually, and that we need uh, more in order to have an effective um, national level government. Um, But you're right that especially after the war coming into the 1780s, a lot of concerns uh, start to emerge about specifically the way the state legislatures are working. Um, and, and a lot of uh, a lot of the framers come to Philadelphia with this concern that those legislators are are not working the way that we had hoped, um, having a lot of concerns about this ideal of reflective representation. Um, one of the legislatures they were often concerned about is the state legislature in Pennsylvania, which, mm. um, for example, was a unicameral legislature. And also in their constitution, they had uh, required that the doors were open to all their meetings, uh, that they print drafts of all the bills that the public could consider before they become laws. So they're very committed um, also to this kind of transparency in the process. Um, And that's just part of the concern of of some of the framers who come to Philadelphia. But generally, this this move to shift and focus on the state legislatures and to say, Mm -hmm. these are not working (laughs) the way way that we hoped or, or thought they might would. Was there a fundamental difference at this point between local attitudes and what we would later call national attitudes? That is, did, did people see that, you know, for the for the town meetings, that a more reflective democracy made sense, but intellectually understood that at the larger level of the state, and especially trying to bring the states together, that an insulated form made more sense? Or was the thinking not that nuanced? Um, I think that... I mean, you'd have a general idea that's kind of out there at the time, which comes from Montesquieu, mainly the the idea that a republic has to be small, right? Um, And there are very few people that are challenging that idea. So Madison becomes a proponent, obviously, of the idea that, uh, no, that's not true. And actually, a bigger republic might be better and, and more durable. But that requires this notion of insulated representation. So I would right. say most people um, in the 1780s, you know, when they're when they're coming to g- toward the Constitutional Convention and, and thinking about these things, mm-hmm. a lot of people are very concerned about establishing any kind of national level government precisely because they worry that that form of reflective representation will be harder Mm. to maintain at that scale but they still desire that it should be like that um it's just a concern that it it might be very hard or impossible to do it occurs to me that it raises a, a a fun question that i haven't thought through yet but it seems to me in the course of human history right so let's take this big you've almost got this bell curve of the ability to do true reflective 
a direct democracy even, right? If you've got a village of a few dozen people, you literally can run it as a direct democracy, an Athenian type democracy. And now with technology, you can do it. There are many reasons not to, but you could literally have public referendums on everything um, with direct internet voting on on every single issue that the, you know, is being legislated by a representative body. It could be done by 300 million people uh, voting once a day on all these issues before them. But for most of human history, it wouldn't be possible because of technology, because of transportation, because of communication barriers. Um, so it, it makes sense that there had to be some engagement with this idea of how as a growing society do we deal with representation, uh, not from a theoretical point of view, although the theorists were involved, but just from a practical point of view of how do we get together and do this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what I try to look at in my book. I, there's been so much excellent writing uh, by historians, political theorists, political science uh, scientists on the the political theory of of this idea. How does representation work? And these kind of different ideas. I, I did try in the book to to address that, but really shift the focus to the practical questions that like you were just saying. Okay, so we have these ideas about how it might work. Now we have to actually do it. So what does that entail? You know, how do you, uh, you know, if you have this reflective ideal of representation, how do you actually put that into practice? Um, you know, in an era before there is public opinion polling, before there is, um, you know, the internet or video technology, recording technology, all these kind of things. There are a lot of kind of technical challenges um, in place that, that they have to confront. I'm going to put, an idea out there um, based on conversations that I've had with Joanne Freeman and Lindsay Travinsky and Jordan Taylor and other historians of this period. Um, and I'm not putting words in their mouth. This is my poor synthesis of what I've taken away from some of those conversations. But please correct me on this statement that doing research on this period, you can get to opinion leaders, right? The the letters of the delegates and the statements of people in some public fora. You can get to the statements by people who owned and printed newspapers, the right, the letter writers, the uh, the opinion pages, such as they were. But that it's really hard to get to what the general public thought. We we don't have, of course, anything approaching polling like we have now. And that it's challenging as a historian, I'll put it that way, to get to what the actual will of the people was, uh, except as mediated through those other mechanisms I mentioned. Um, tell me where where that's right and where that's wrong and how you think through that when you're researching this as a historian. I think that's absolutely right. Um, but I don't know that technology has totally solve that either. I, I think this question of That's a fair the, point. you know, the general will or what the public thinks. Um, that's really hard to arrive at, uh, even today. I mean, there's recently, in the last few years, especially, there's been a lot of questions even about public opinion polling as, you know, how how accurate is that? Um, are you reaching the right people? Uh, all of these kind of questions. Um, and I think that that's part of the challenge with a democratic government is that that idea of the common will, the common good is very elusive. It's, it's very hard to identify. So yeah, the further you go back in time, I think the harder and harder it is to, to try to get at that. And I actually think that's something that's just very 
uh, central to understanding this period because the public or the people or public opinion, um, that was vested with so much power in, in the late 18th century. And at the same time, it was such an ill-defined and elusive thing. And, and so that, that makes it at once very tricky at the time. A lot of things could be projected onto that. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes it very powerful <laughs> uh, and tricky. But as a historian, it also makes it hard because you have to be careful as a historian how you write about the public as an actor, right? Um, you have to be really careful about what you mean by that. Um, people at the time were operating with very different definitions of you know, what they mean by that. Um, and so, yeah, when you're going back, you have to be, I think, hyper aware of, of those challenges. Well, let's get back to the big theme here of secrecy and democracy and darkness. One of the most compelling episodes in the U.S. context is the convention that led to the drafting of the Constitution in 1787. Talk a little bit about the convention in terms of just its physical manifestations of security, and then how that became such a rallying point for the anti-federalists, the people who were opposing the Constitution in the ratifying conventions, um, because it is such a seminal moment, and yet it, it illustrates to some degree, one of your main points, which is that, you know, secrecy in uh, representation is not necessarily a bad thing because the road to hell can be paved with good intentions, as in the French case in the 1790s. So talk about the, the Constitutional Convention and the issues of secrecy around it. Yeah, so you have in 1787, 55 delegates who make their way to Philadelphia, they meet in the State House And Pretty much as soon as they all get there, they decide to shut the doors. They have guards outside. They close the windows. This is Philadelphia summer, so it's hot. Um, they are they're committed to keeping a tight wrap on what they're discussing in the room. Uh, a lot of histories kind of note this, uh, you know, in a sentence or two or in a footnote. Um, it's there, but I think uh, when I teach about this, you know, a lot of students are really surprised. Like, wait, what do you mean they they met in secret? Um, but this was really key to, I think, and I argue in the book, their understanding of what it meant to create uh, a document uh, to legislate in the name of the people. Um, and it was this kind of uh, putting into practice of this more insulated vision of, of what it meant to, to represent the people. Um, so they're very committed to this. I mean, through the summer, there, there are very few leaks, really, um, that do come out of the convention. It's shocking looking back at it, isn't it? That, of course, we knew how momentous this, this was. But even at the time, people recognized something important was happening. And there's almost nothing coming out. Yeah, I think it's hard for us to even imagine today, um, just because of our, our media landscape and our expectations about politics and how it works. But um, yeah, at the time, there's there's very little. I mean, there are some newspaper reports you can find that are noting, you know, that there's this meeting going on, that it is happening in secret. Some reports note that with a little bit of concern. Others note that with a, a sense of confidence, like, oh, it's good that they're probably there, they're they're insulated, they're you know uh, they're they're safely there and kind of discussing things carefully. Um, that it might indicate that. So you have some awareness of it, but but once they publish the Constitution in September of 1787 and um, the, and put it out there for for ratification and debate, 
you immediately have uh, critics who stand up and start to say, wait a minute, um, this really can't be considered a document in the name of the people. If it was formulated entirely behind closed doors, the people had no chance to offer their input on it. They had uh, no chance to understand how it was formulated. And, and now you're coming and asking them to either accept or reject this wholesale uh, without any of this knowledge that that is not um, that that is not a legitimate uh, representative process, that that's not an act of popular sovereignty. So, yeah, so it becomes a key um, critique of the anti-federalists who, who are arguing against the Constitution. Hmm. So how does that play out? Because, I mean, on the one hand, I can look back at it and say, I mean, of course, it led to the Constitution, which is a, a generally good thing. But You've, you've, you've convinced me through your research and writing that secrecy was not all that uncommon then. So it wasn't weird that they did this in secret. Uh, obviously, they had a, a tenuous mandate here because they were supposed to be revising the Articles of Confederation. There at least was the prospect, if not the reality, of foreign spies trying to figure out what was going on, as well as, if you could call them, domestic spies. You could say the deputies, you know, the, the, the people coming to this convention weren't elected anyway, um, and they needed to have space for political deliberation, right? They needed to be able to make compromises. So you've got all that. And again, I can say that looking back because it led to a, a generally good result. But the counter arguments seem to be much, I don't know, simpler, much more, and, and not necessarily emotional, that's not fair, but much more visceral, just like, but, but we didn't know what they were doing. You know, we, sure. we don't know how they did it, but I don't think it's as well thought out as a, as a theory. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, it strikes me. One of the things you just noted that, you know, um, when they're coming together and having this convention, it's not altogether uncommon for legislative bodies to meet behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. That's true, but that had been changing. Um, and there was an awareness that that was changing. So, I mean, the house of commons, for example, in 1771, they start to allow reporters to come in. They're not happy about it. They don't want to, but they start to allow reporters to come and, and report on their deliberations. And like I was talking about earlier, you also have a lot of these states uh, where in the state legislatures, they had started to let reporters come in, let members of the public come in. So the expectations about that are changing. Um, in this period. And I, I think the framers are aware of that. And we can tell because even in the Constitution, they actually do uh, have a requirement that they put in there that congressional journals, for example, will be published, um, they say from time to time. And they, they have a caveat there allowing for secrecy. But that indicates that there's a sense that there is some sort of expectation that the government they're setting up is going to have some uh, sort of transparency or that that's going to need to be there. Now, despite this, they still decide to to meet in secret. And I think that that might help us understand the back the backlash that they face for having done that, which I, I can see what you're saying does maybe feel a bit more or less um, thought out. But I think it mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense in the context that we're in in the late 18th century, where there had been a lot of anxiety about secrecy in the state that had been building up over the previous few decades. And so when this group of, of men goes and meets in secret, um, it makes a lot of sense 
that there would be a sort of immediate suspicion raised by that in light of these kind of changing and contested practices Mm -hmm. in legislative um, and constituent bodies in the period. And we can also see the ratifying conventions. um, For the most part, those commit to meeting with open doors um, and, and that there is this kind of pressure for that. Um, you know, one thing I also wanted to come back to is you're kind of saying that that secrecy leads to a good outcome, right? Uh, or that it, you know, is good. I, I, I was just telling my students, you know, historians always, they don't say if something's good or bad, they just say it's a thing, right? <laughs> that, that it happened and they can tell you why and different effects. But I think that 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 also depends on the perspective you're taking of um, mm. whether you think that the the result of that secrecy um, was good or or worth it might be another way of putting it mm. um, because you can certainly I think view it the other way too and right. say that you yeah. know maybe maybe the outcome was not good <laughs> um, or maybe it wasn't worth it um, so I think that that is a matter of uh, opinion. That is that is very true, uh, and I see that in so many ways. Right, L- looking at the Constitution, which uh, my bias is, I think it's a pretty good document that gets a whole lot of things right and much better than almost anyone else at the time. Mm-hmm. But it's got some obvious and major flaws, which the secrecy didn't help with and may have hurt with, like the issue of slavery, um, the lack of representation for women, and other issues. Um, I can't make the hypothetical, and I know historians hate the. Um, hypotheticals just as well, but I can't make the hypothetical that without secrecy that those would have been better. I'm not, I'm not sure about that, um, but but it's, it clearly was not perfection. Um, but it leads to this ongoing issue even today, Caitlin, if I'm right, that because of the secrecy of the convention, um, because George Washington, if I understand right, kept the journals till the late, almost what, in 1796 or 1797, uh, before he turned them over to the State Department, Mm -hmm. and they remained unpublished for another 20 years or so. Um, And even those are limited, right? Madison, I think, kept the best notes, but there's no real full journal of every conversation and what happened. And that has huge implications and consequences for the doctrine of originalism and reading into what was meant by every word in the constitution at the time. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I talk about that in the book as well, that, um, there, there are very limited sources that we have to, to understand what happened in the room. And as you know, Madison's are often, um, cited as the most comprehensive and complete set of notes that we have. But we also know that he edited those a great deal afterward. Um, and, even even if he had not done that, going back, we were talking earlier about technological limitations and things like that. He was also a participant in the convention. We have to also think about how much could he have even written down while he's in there trying to keep up with the meetings, um, the limitations of those things, um, just the ability to actually try to record by hand. Um, speech at the time. It's very difficult. So yeah, there, there is a real challenge with the, the sources that come out of that meeting. And, you know, Madison, when he, um, when his notes get, get published in, in the 19th century, you know, he had written later in his life that he thought without secrecy, there never would have been a constitution reached. 
Um, he believed that the notes, yeah. uh, you know, shouldn't come out until all the founders had had passed away so posthumously. Um, and, and part of that was to dislocate the uh, effort of interpretation away from the convention itself. Mm -hmm. it, it really was to kind of give that sense of this disembodied unanimity behind this document, um, which you know, I, I, I argue in the book, the use of secrecy was was fairly effective in, in creating that. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Once the notes start to come out, there are references back to the convention and that kind of that kind of shifts. But um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I think that historians have a big role to play in pointing out the limitations of those sources. Right. Well, we ended up with a republic, as uh, Benjamin Franklin reportedly said, if we can keep it. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that long. It was only a few years later in the Washington administration that we had a, another really important moment around the issue of secrecy and representation in government, which was the Jay Treaty that was negotiated in secret. And the text arrived, if I remember right, the, the Senate voted on it while keeping its terms secret from mm -hmm. the House and the public. And it created a furor. Uh, talk about the reaction to the Jay Treaty and how it really brought these these arguments about reflective and insulated representation out into the open. Yeah, so the Jay Treaty gets negotiated with Great Britain in the context of an ongoing war between France and Britain. And you have the United States trying to chart a path in this. So there's this real question of is the U.S. going to stand by its ally, France, from the revolution? Um, or is it going to kind of go back more toward Great Britain um, and especially kind of promote the commercial kind of relations there? So in that context, Washington decides to chart a course of neutrality. Um, and in 1793, he issues the Neutrality Proclamation. And already then, he, he faces a lot of backlash as something that that's done through an executive action. Um, he already faces backlash there um, from a lot of, um, see, I hesitate to say public opinion because it's hard to know right. if everyone agreed with this, but anyway, a loud segment of the population that is much more pro-French um, and, and views this as sort of a betrayal of the French allies um, mm -hmm. and not in line with public opinion. So in light of that, he, he sends John Jay to Great Britain to negotiate this treaty um, that's done secretly. As you note, it comes back. The Senate uh, de debates about whether to ratify that in secret. And right after the vote is taken, it, it gets leaked and printed in the opposition press. And there's this huge outcry um, where, you know, there, there are burnings of Jay and effigy up and down the, the coastline. Um, there are all these petitions that are sent into Washington. And there's sort of a, a real focus on the secrecy surrounding that treaty. And you mm -hmm. have a lot of these new popular societies at the time coming out and pointing to that and saying, you know, the, this government is using secrecy to subvert the will of the people. Um, we don't want to be allied with Great Britain. Um, you know, we're loudly saying that. And the government is still pursuing that path. And they're using secrecy to, to hide that from us and do it um, against our will. So it's a, it's a real moment where you see a focus on the use of secrecy to, to sort of say that is corrupting representation, mm -hmm. or it's at least, uh, it's corrupting their vision of representation, which, which to them should be reflective, right? Um, Washington doesn't, doesn't share that vision of how representation should work. I find it odd that 
a lot of these calls starting around this time, uh, based on my limited understanding of these social political clubs that, you know, this huge outcry for watching the government and having more insight into what happens. But from my limited understanding, a lot of them had meetings in secret and operated in secret themselves. Yeah, 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 they do. And actually, the Federalists, um, uh, which is, you know, the political party that Washington is part of, political faction that he's part of, they criticize these popular societies for exactly that point. They say, you know, you're calling for all this openness and, and publicity. Will you yourselves meet in secret? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the clubs come, they have a response to that, which is, well, we're not um, the elected representatives we're not of governing. the people. Right, exactly. So they kind of come back at it, at it like that. But you're absolutely right to note that, uh, you know, secrecy is also often a function of, of those societies. Mm-hmm. Well, there's someone who certainly changed his mind during this time. And I'm a big fan of political actors getting new information and changing their mind and, and not being labeled as flip floppers, which happens all too often now. Mm-hmm. But in this case, I'm I'm not sure I can fully defend it because it does seem like he does it for political reasons, much more so than uh, independently weighing what's best. Although I can't say I'm not in the heart of James Madison. But James Madison back in the 1770s was definitely articulating, as you've already said, a view of the need for an insulated representation at the time. But by the 1790s, he's writing about the government not being linked closely enough to public opinion and the need essentially for what you would call a more reflective representative model. Talk through Madison's change and how much as a historian you see it as wound up with his personal political prospects, how much you see it as electorally driven versus an evolution of thought that was deeper for him than his initial thoughts. Yeah. I mean, the short answer is I think it's both. And I, I, I try to emphasize that in the book that I think we're often quick to dismiss um, decisions or actions that people take in the past as merely strategic or in their self-interest. Of course, people are often acting strategically or in their self-interest, but it's linked, I think, to their underlying thought and ideas about things. And I think that those uh, those practicalities, if you will, and the theories are kind of informing one another in, in sort of a feedback loop. And I think that that happens for Madison. So once he gets into Congress, the, the new government is operating in the 1790s, he really starts to question a lot of the, the theories that he'd been instrumental in articulating and, and structuring um, with the new government. And he starts to think that maybe it's not quite working the way that, that he expected. Yeah. And you're right to note that a lot of the spark for that are the, the passage and implementation of policies that he thinks are, are bad. Um, that he doesn't agree with or he thinks are dangerous in, right. in various ways. So kind of the pursuit of Hamiltonian kind of policies, to, to put it in short. Um, so it, it is those policies, but I think that that does trigger for him an underlying concern about the way representation is working. Because I think he also genuinely believes that those policies are not popular. And I think that he then starts to think, well, if we had a more reflective style of representation, we wouldn't have these policies that I don't agree with, that, that you know, actually these are unpopular policies and this insulated style of representation, this use of secrecy is a way of implementing them. So not only are they unpopular, he also thinks they're bad, right? So mm-hmm. I think that that leads him to, to really rethink and say, okay, 
it's not that he doesn't still see pitfalls to um, greater transparency or to a reflective style of representation. I think that he just comes to see that as the lesser evil, essentially, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. though imperfect, I I think he comes to see it as the best possible solution to having government by the people because Mm -hmm. he starts to fear the potential, I don't know, excesses of a more insulated model. And I think that that makes sense, especially you know, near the end of the 1790s with what we now know as the Alien and Sedition Acts, um, the Sedition Act, and then the the legislation that dealt with alien issues, but the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798, that, you know, th- this was a, a time of polarization, if you will. And for Madison, in terms of the greater evil, he certainly would see that as, as the greater evil. Uh, give us the best arguments that were made at the time against the Alien and Sedition Acts and the um, and then on the other side, the best arguments that the Federalists made for for why these these measures made sense. Sure. Well, I mean, the best arguments against them, and these are the the ones that I focus on mostly in this book, are that it prohibits the kind of dialogue and relationship that there needs to be between elected officials and the public, the people, um, by restricting that dialogue, controlling it. Um, and trying to shut down the, those avenues. Um, I think that, I mean, there's that, there's another argument that's made that I think is also a very powerful argument, which is more about the question of, you really can't trust the government to referee, uh, you know, for the truth in, in a public uh, discussion about any given issue, because it's always, it has its own bias, right? Um, so those are the arguments against. Um, the Federalist, make, I think, important arguments in favor of it. I, I don't go into it as much in this book. I, I hope to do it in future projects. Um, but they, they make an argument about, yeah, they, they make an argument about um, the truth mattering a mm-hmm. lot in yeah. a representative republic and that it's really important to try to ensure that public opinion is based on truth. And if mm-hmm. you allow lies or error um, to go kind of unchecked, if you just rely on this uh, free marketplace of ideas kind of idea that the truth will eventually emerge, they say, well, no, actually, it it doesn't always. Mm -hmm. And that's really a threat to Republican government, to to government Mm -hmm. by the people. Um, and so they're proposing this this solution that we know we need to try to adjudicate truth from falsehood in, in the political realm. Now, the solution they come up with doesn't work, and there are a lot of problems with that. But I do think they they raise, um, you know, especially I think for us in light of the last decade, you know, we might think about it a bit differently. They they raise some points that are are I think worth taking seriously and thinking about. I'm with you there. I certainly remember learning back in school the Alien and Sedition Acts were the bumper sticker for. I know you don't like words like good or bad, but it was as close as history teachers got to putting that just in the bad category. And yet there is something to be said, especially with a lot of what we've seen in in our time that no, the, at least some of the people, some of the federalists behind this weren't trying to say that people couldn't print or speak at, at their leisure. They could. The issue was that they had to be prepared to prove the charges that hurt other people. Um, And there's, you're right. There, there is something to be said for that. Uh, of course, it was horribly executed, but that's a separate issue. 
I mean, um, just to jump on on that, I mean, they also have strategic goals here. And if we look at how the law is implemented, who gets prosecuted, it's very clear that their their chief goal, and most of the people who are supporting this, is to shut down opposition <laughs> to their their policies. But the the way it gets debated and and the kind of terminology and ideas that get put out there to debate this act, mm-hmm. they are making um, you know theoretically interesting and, and important points. So yeah. Uh, yeah. You yeah. have to draw, I think, again, drawing that distinction between, right. um, yeah, effect so, and intent. To, to balance out the, uh, my education, you know, the Alien and Sedition Acts in that category, the other side was, I'm old enough to remember when the, the history books for kids had Thomas Jefferson, you know, all but deified, right? Thomas Jefferson right. was the hero and there was nothing about the nuance and contradictions within his life. And the more I read and learn about Jefferson, the less enamored I am. And on this issue of secrecy and democracy, wow, um, he really comes out, the complications are rich. Um, You could put a label on him of hypocrite, that's a bit strong. But certainly as someone who, you know, comes into the office of the presidency on this wave of opening up government and, and does enact some things related to that, he also operates a lot behind closed doors and does things like the Louisiana Purchase without that kind of representative, reflective representation involved. Um, Jefferson becomes an even more complicated and I would argue unlikable figure in many ways. What did you think about Jefferson when you looked at him through this lens of secrecy and democracy? Yeah, I mean, I I, I thought that Again, the the kind of pattern that you've identified, it's very evident in in this realm as well. So it really fits into this, um, our understanding of Jefferson as a very contradictory figure. Um, In that sense, I I don't know that I would say that he is a villain necessarily, but it's more like he's, he's just an interesting figure to understand humans, how humans are, which is often they're very contradictory. Um, And they say one thing, do another thing, or they, you know, they're not entirely ideologically coherent and these kind of things. So I think Jefferson's really useful for um, thinking about that and, and uh, you know, reemphasizing that that's also how the founders were, <laughs> you know, early, early American politicians. Um, but he's a really key figure in my story because I, I try to talk about, you know, as the book goes on, that there's kind of this gap that opens between practice and rhetorical commitment. So Jefferson remains, you know, very rhetorically committed to publicity, mm-hmm. transparency, um, reflection of the common man in government. Um, but then in practice, as you, you know, briefly noted, he um, he uses a lot of measures of secrecy when he's in in the White House governing, and he's very adamant about trying to kind of cordon off his private life um, and and hide that um, from his public life. So he really kind of brings home this notion of publicity or transparency more as performance um, than as actual practice, Mm -hmm. um, kind of opening that that gap. Due to my own horrible uh, scheduling for this, I've not left enough time for us to dive into the the other side of your research on this, which is the French example. Sure. Um, but if you could give just a couple of sentences to define, you know, the, the 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 lesson that comes out most from contrasting the American experience with the French experience and the the horrors that the French went through 
um, during some of this time period as well. Um, what's your bottom line on the interesting contrast? And then we'll leave people to read all the details in the book itself. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the bottom line is just that looking at the French case in parallel with the American case really highlights, I think, the significance of these kind of procedural decisions about whether meetings will happen with open doors, what's going to be reported and not how a public audience is let in or not. Um, that looking at these two events together, where they often make very different decisions and follow very different paths, that those are very significant for understanding um, the way that these governments get set up, the way that people think about political representation um, in these places. So that's that's kind of the bottom line. But yeah, essentially, France kind of follows a, a more of an opposite, opposite trajectory. They kind of start out much more open, uh, much more procedurally committed to transparency. Right. And then through the course of the 1790s, they reintroduce secrecy and shut many things down. Whereas the Americans are kind of following the opposite path, start out a little more closed and then tend toward opening more things later. Um, so the book kind of argues that those decisions made at the the beginning, the the founding, so to speak, had very lasting implications for the stability and kind of nature of the governments that that get set up in that period. And I can say that having digested all of your your research and writing on the French case, it just highlights for me it's going to challenge a lot of people's priors that it's hard to read about the the evolution of the French experience from the 1780s through Bonaparte, really, and and come away feeling good about whatever pure political philosophy you think you're bringing because uh, openness, which seems like a valid principle um, and a core ethic, has some real challenges in practice in those years. And secrecy has some real advantages, but it doesn't always work out the way you think it will, which makes it a fascinating read yeah. in many ways. Yeah, I think there are a lot of unexpected twists and yeah. turns. I mean, as you know, the French case really highlights some of the potential um, dangers and drawbacks of mm -hmm. transparency, but it also highlights some of the dangers and drawbacks of excessive uses of secrecy, um, mm. which I argue were really central to uh, what we know as the terror. Right. Um, and so, so yeah, it tries to, it tries to complicate a lot of those ideas. Absolutely. Well, I did want to leave just a couple of minutes to talk about the implications for today, which depending on your your personality and flavor as a historian, you either love or hate the required <laughs> questions about, so what does this mean for us today? But clearly we're still struggling with this these issues, whether it's how an impeachment investigation is run and how many hearings are in public versus not, whether it's intelligence activities, which are inherently secret, but do now in recent decades have oversight committees of the, the people's representatives. Um, what do you think is useful about understanding this rich, deep history of secrecy and democracy and darkness and light, given just how big the government is now and all of the different areas that need to have oversight? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing is just that it shows that attitudes and decisions about what should be secret and transparent in government have a deep and complicated history. There's such a, an assumption now that, or an association of transparency with democracy, that secrecy um, is is just kind of viewed as fundamentally threatening to it. Now, in a lot of ways, that is true. I, I, I don't necessarily contest that. But I think that we need to recognize that that value, that valuing of transparency itself has a history. 
um, and that it's not always been taken for granted. <laughs> um, and that actually, if you study the history of that, um, there are also important questions, reservations, challenges that, that are raised by, by the way that that had been adopted and implemented in history that I think we need to think carefully about when we make these kind of decisions um, today. Do you think, and I, I hate to put you in this position, but you have the ability to do it more than almost anyone I know. If you were to take Madison and and take his views, which because he wrote a lot, we have good ideas of his views on a lot of these issues over many decades. If we were to transplant him to today, what what do you think his first observations about the openness of government and about closed doors, closed door hearings, where do you think he would focus the most when he saw what the U.S. government looks like today? Wow, that's a that is a tough question. I I mean I think that the thing that would be so striking is just the extent to which technological change, changes in communication, have fundamentally altered the landscape of how you can even conceive of and think about these questions of the relationship between the government and the people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in Madison's day, it mm -hmm. took time for news to spread. Today, yeah. it doesn't. Yeah. Um, and that just poses, that, that just creates a new landscape. So right. I think that, uh, I think probably those elements would blow his mind and maybe uh, have him no. going back to the drawing board and, and thinking about a lot of these things in, in new ways. Okay. One last thing, and then I will let you go, which is our chatterbox. We reach in and ask a random question at the end. Okay. Name one dead political or national security related leader from any era that we could really use right now. Yeah, I think it would be James Madison, actually, uh -huh. because I would love to ask him a lot of these questions about yeah. his theories about an extended republic or his thoughts about secrecy and how that can facilitate compromise or what are the drawbacks. And I would love to, you know, give mm -hmm. him a few days, weeks, maybe to catch up and get a grip <laughs> on the situation. And then, and then I don't know, get his take on what he thinks in light of, of everything that we're dealing with today. And I want to know just what he edited out of those constitutional convention notes. Exactly. We could yeah. ask him. <laughs> yeah. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much. Um, again, thank you for researching and writing the book, Democracy in Darkness, Secrecy and Transparency in the Age of Revolutions and spending time with me today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Mm -hmm.